Good Wednesday morning. Today, John is going to talk about a letter we got from Malawi. Uh, We're going to talk about families and the value and the stories that the children can be drawn into. And we're going to end up talking about Augustine College. And if you're really curious, stick around till the end where me and John kind of banter a little bit. But also something, as you listen to today's podcast, you're going to hear about this gentleman who wrote in a letter from Malawi. And prior to recording the podcast, John and I were just talking about things and talking about what would it look like for maybe the viewers of this podcast. We didn't specifically say this, but the viewers of this podcast to raise some money and uh, maybe get this kid, Canada, to Augustine College. So if you guys have questions about that, feel free to look in the comments down below to contact us, reach out to us. And again, my name is Craig Flood. I'm the host today, and let's jump into it. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's probably not morning for you, but it is for me. Uh, it's uh, a, a warm and somewhat muggy day here, but I've already had a good morning, so I'm in a good mood. Uh, the good Lord does that, doesn't he? One of the things that's happened in the last week or two is I got a lovely email from a final-year medical student in Malawi who had been down with a group of Christian students from the medical school to the uh, my daughter's mission project. She's been collecting abandoned children in Malawi for 20 years, uh, is now sliding out of that to come back and keep the place funded. They're, they're currently dealing with oh horrendous uh, flooding and uh, disaster, which seems to happen every other year, something or other. Anyway, this, this medical student went down uh, with other medical students to be helpful, see if, see what if it, any of the children needed anything doing, then got talking to Joanna. Uh, and he was talking about how much he needed someone to help him negotiate through what he could see medicine doing to his soul, uh, but he didn't know how to do it. And so uh, she said, well, you might like to listen to my dad. And the email was was as follows. I, I read it because um, it's beautiful. I won't give his name because I haven't asked him permission yet. But he says, I am a final year medical student in Malawi. I first learned of you from your daughter, Joanna, during a chat we had when we went to her and her big family in Bangula last month with the Christian Medical Fellowship Group here. We periodically make trips to the village where we serve and interact with the children. After that, I quickly went on YouTube and have been listening to you and your talks ever since, especially in the morning, and I am currently listening to one as I write this email. I have been a distance learner necessarily, and all I can say is thank you so much. This is what I have been needing for so long. Someone talking about the depth of the originality of the medical practice and its implications to the whole undertaking, and how to tackle it on a Christian basis. Throughout my medical school, one thing I have consistently thought about is the meaning of medicine today, considering the many dilutions of our noble profession, which have been bombarding us for the past centuries. I've also read quite a number of writers on philosophy and life, including Chesterton, Lewis, Schaeffer, and Thomas Brown. Very unusual, that one. On top of this, getting to hear you and your messages have been complementing pieces to my puzzle, and they are a very important one. No one could not enjoy uh, an email like that, Uh, but I know there are thousands of students like that. This is the big difference between African students and ours, their culture and ours. Theirs is a a culture which is, I think, turning steadily towards Christianity, whereas we're turning steadily away. We're like ships passing in the night, going in opposite directions. And they're going in the right right way, but they are troubled by all the things that have always troubled the establishment of the Christian church. 
when the Holy Spirit touches us and we comprehend the gospel and grace comes into our lives, that can be fast or slow, but sometimes it can be very fast, instantaneous change even. Uh, But that doesn't make you good. It doesn't make the society better instantly. That's a long, long, slow process for for whatever reason God does it that way. Uh, Look at the thousands of years he spent preparing the Jews primarily, I think, to understand that, yes, I've given you a a heart and mind to understand good and evil, but you're also obsessed with yourselves. So you think that by keeping those rules, everything will be good. Well, it will certainly be better, but it's not enough. So Christ came to the one group of people on earth who would not be willing to listen to him at one level because they thought they could do it all themselves. And basically what he says about the law in in the Sermon on the Mount is, you have misunderstood it. You think that if you obey all the rules, everything will go well. But that's not what the law is for. You've had to diminish the law in order to think that. Now think about the law precisely. You cannot keep a single one of them successfully throughout your life when I take it down to the level of what you're thinking. I I make no distinctions, says Christ. I look on the heart. Uh, The fact that some people express what's in their heart has a social implication, but the spiritual one is what concerns Christ. And he says, you have got to learn that, as Paul beautifully put it later on, that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Its function is not to make you good, but to make you understand why you need a saviour. But if you don't see that, you haven't begun to be a disciple. And the way we present the gospel, sadly in Africa too, Uh, evangelism with lots of people and crowd psychology and all the rest is not the ideal way to do it, I don't think. Well, God uses it. My own wife was converted by a Billy Graham crusade, not even live. But nevertheless, what Christ is looking for is disciples. He could have done things that should have wowed everybody and made a huge emotional impact at the time, but he didn't. He chose to pour most of his time into half a dozen uh, oppressed people in the modern sense, and he transformed them from the inside. And they changed the world as they understood the nature of the gospel. So in Africa, Conversion has happened and people can see what it's done. Uh, They have live stories. It's a bit like being in the Acts of the Apostles at the time. Miracles still happen there in a way they don't here. Uh, God does that when the gospel first comes. Jonah and David have seen miracles. There's no other explanation for what happens. When you're miles from anywhere, if miracles don't happen, it's a disaster. But when God is present, it's not. So that ethos is still alive and well in Africa. So there's no hatred of Christianity like there is in the West now, and the hatred of our own culture and what has happened. So everything we look at, I was just switched the television on, actually, to look at a cricket score. But I got a children's program uh, before I got to what I was interested in. And the people on the, the, that children's program and the cartoons that were going on, I thought, my goodness, they have got such a different ethos behind them. Uh, when we were children, can you imagine a children's program that began today? Are you all sitting comfortably? Then I will begin. That's how Listen With Mother used to begin every day, that you're going to sit down, be quiet, and listen. Uh, kindness, goodness, uh, stories with good moral content. They were the norm. Little jigging and up and down, I mean, that could be done and was done, and that kind of enjoyment children do naturally. But what we realized we achieved, or was achieved in us, 
We can both remember running home from school in order to get home in time not to miss any of children's hour. There was one hour of children's programming on the BBC at that time, five o'clock, I think, if I remember rightly. But we wouldn't be dragging around. We wanted to be there. And they did consecutive stories, serial stories, but beautifully read uh, by British actors. And they captured us. And the story was not going to pretend that I'm just going to make you all excited. That wasn't what it was about. It was about drawing you into a narrative. So we learned to think in that kind of way. And uh, I went on to think about that a bit more. You see, I, I, I had no screens. We had no television. We only had the radio, which, of course, is a more Christian medium than, than visual, visual one, although we're visual at the moment. We're really Logos people at the end of the day and a culture that came from the word rather than the image. Uh, we had that. And underlying that, there was a total acceptance of uh, Christianity. I mean, you go back and read Hansard, the transcripts of Parliament 100 years ago, and uh, the God was mentioned beginning regularly with reverence. You go back 150 and very frequently, there was no question that the world was created by God as a basic principle to and Darwin came along, uh, and he, he gave an account which was misunderstood at a very important level. I mean, it meant that Victorian businessmen could say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I grind the faces of the poor. It's just the way the world is. Uh, yeah. That's part of the process. There's, there's no loving kindness in the Darwinian story. There's no moral base. Uh, but it it didn't really infiltrate the whole culture for a long while. And so we grew up with a tacit world that was basically biblical. And in fact, the whole of Western culture is made by the Bible. And the Protestant church in particular happened because of the printing press, Logos. And what did Gutenberg print first? The Bible. So that very shortly, millions of people were reading the Bible and Luther translated it into German, so they, they got it in German. In the, uh, the vernacular was what happened very quickly, and that meant that people started to think for themselves in a way they'd, they'd never dreamed of being able to do before. In the Middle Ages, not all Catholic priests had a copy of the Bible. I mean, everything had to be copied by hand. It's a very long, slow process. God's not in a hurry. Uh, but once printing came along and the Bible could be read by every man, uh, every woman, uh, it was a different world. And the Protestant church in particular was a product of that. Uh, in the process, we tended to lose some of the sacramental understanding that had been the reason people went to church for all those centuries. The sacraments were more important preaching in most churches around Europe would have been minimal in most cases. So that was a very different world. Now we've reached the stage where, well, you, you travel on a bus or a train or whatever, and what do you see? Everybody's looking at their screens. They go to a restaurant. Dad is painted take the family out for a meal, and the kids are looking at their screens during the meal. And so are the adults. They don't even turn them off for, for that. Um, we've got studies now showing that, that their power over us is such that highly intelligent people, like students in medical school, uh, there's been, uh, I, I can't remember the exact details, but Fundamentally, they took a group of students away for a weekend and they took their, uh, their phones away from them. Said, you're not going to use them this weekend. And within hours, the students were begging, begging for their, their phones. They couldn't live a day without them now. That means it's, it's, different. it's worse than addiction. It's control. And... I was also listening this week to uh, 
John Lennox discussing AI with John Anderson. I recommend it. It's on YouTube. You won't have any difficulty in finding it. AI, John Lennox and John Anderson. Um, about the control that is taking place, our freedoms being taken away from us. And that student writing from Malawi had a rather unusual phrase. He talked about the dilution of medicine. It's a nice thought, actually, because medicine was narrowly focused on the patient for a long while because we had no treatment. All we offered them really was understanding. Uh, we understood the diseases to a degree, so we could tell them, that's a bad one, you're going to get over this one, whatever. But we understood that it was helping a, a fellow human being to cope with a difficult situation. Uh, now, uh, you get, as my wife said again when she had to go into a hospital for surgery some time ago, she said, the residents looked at me through the results. They didn't look at me and then the results to tell me what they meant. They, they looked at me through the results, and she's right. Uh, uh, and we've become more and more hyper-specialized, and uh, the actual meaning of medicine has got lost. Uh, I, I, I wrote a piece about it, and I probably mentioned it, uh, uh, because I was annoyed by something that occurred in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I wrote a paper... Um, I passed the office on my way home, I put an envelope and popped it through the letterbox and I said, well, I won't even get an answer, but uh, I did the next morning from the editor said, I'll publish this, but only if I can have two people to rebut it, because basically I was attacking the whole medical education process and the way it's lost its way, lost its focus. I love W.H. Auden's description of a doctor when he was getting to the end of his life, this is what you do. This is the person you want. Give me a doctor, partridge plump, short in the leg and broad in the rump, an endomorph with gentle hands who will not make absurd demands that I abandon all my vices. But with a twinkle in his eye, will tell me that I have to die. It, only Auden could write that in so few words and with that kind of cadence. But he's making a point. At the end of your life, at the moment, we're, we're being managed. Uh, we don't die in pain. Our death is being managed. And now the bureaucrats are taking over. And we will be managed into early death by uh, comfort. Uh, they, they call it MAID. Uh, initially, they called it MAD, medical assistance in death, uh, dying. Um, but then they realized that was not a very good acronym, so they put the I in the medical assistance in dying. But you can die with only uh, marginal permission if something can be written in the notes, say, uh, the patient was very dis distressed and asked that this should be over, so we provided made. Not realizing, because we're now so uneducated, uh, that my life is miserable. What they're saying is, tell me that I'm needed. It's actually a plea for uh, injecting their role back into themselves so that they can see meaning in their life. Uh, we don't even understand what they're saying. Uh, a lament, you ask a student, what's a lament? Uh, they wouldn't immediately go back to the great Scottish laments that the aching heart of loss in battle and all the rest. Uh, always, all at its best, uh, bringing you back to God. I mean, even to Kenneth Branagh's wonderful uh, production of Henry V, Kenneth Branagh's not a good man in many ways, but, but he, he had artistic and spiritual insight because after the Battle of Agincourt, uh, he has the whole of the English army that should not have won but had singing a song of praise to God. Uh, it's, it, it's very, very moving. If you've never heard it, go find it. In, after the battle in uh, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. If you've never watched it, watch it with your children. They'll, they'll buy into it. Uh, it's a good film. But it's a, it, this time it's not a lament. It, it, it's praise for victory. And immediately... The reflex of society at that time was to thank God for the victory. Uh, 
So, um, look, this leads me to thinking about that young man is when I talk to students, they often ask me to, uh, to talk about guidance. And I say, well, I don't do guidance. Only God can do that. Um, but what I can do is talk to you about ways of being that will make you more aware of what God is saying to you. And I will go to Psalm 73, uh, one of my favorite Psalms. I don't need to open the Bible for, uh, to talk about it. That's how deeply into my heart it is. I think it's a Psalm written in flashback, if you like. I think it's written by an old man and he's looking back on his life. So it begins, as for me, my foot had well nigh slipped. He's thinking about his youth. And he'd been well brought up. It's quite clear from later in the psalm that he had a, a solid uh, family. So why was he on the edge of slipping? He said, I was envious of the wicked. Then he goes on to account for looking around. And you don't have to be brilliant to see that it's just as true now and perhaps more so. People who make short-term riches in this modern world are often doing it in ways that are, well, questionable at least. But his problem at that age, as a young man, I think, was he was being good as he had been taught to be, living an ethical, upright life, and he was losing and they were winning. And of course, the Jews in their story had lost a good many times. And even in the psalm, we come back and we've drunk a cup of bitterness. And he said, I don't know what to say about it. My foot had well nigh slipped. But then in the same verse, there's really two turning points. Most people talking about the psalm only pick up the second one. But I think the first one is in many ways more important. Um, again, with respect to families. He says, but if I express these thoughts, imagine him going home from university and going to church. He says, if I say these things, that this is where I am, to the people who have brought me up, I'll break their hearts. I can't do that. But he still didn't know what to do about it. But at least he'd been well brought up to think about the impact of what he was going to say on other people. And it stopped him. It's not true that you need to ventilate everything. But certainly you can do it with God. He's seen it anyway. All thoughts are open to him. But if you express exactly how you feel every day, you're not going to have a relationship with anyone for any length of time. Because all our minds struggle with these things. And then he says, it was not until I went into the house of the Lord that I understood their end. I was a fool. I saw that their feet were in slippery places. They were going to fall flat. He'd already experienced <clears throat> the result of his upbringing. He'd been stopped from damaging unnecessarily a whole lot of relationships. And then he says, to the Lord, you are all that I need. What a fool I was to think in any other way. And I know that when I die afterwards, you will take me to glory. It's one of the first Psalms to have a real sense of life after death. Uh, God was very gentle and slow in introducing these things to us. Uh, but that Psalm of Asaph is is a superb one. I call it uh, the medical student psalm uh, or any student psalm, if you like, one to learn by heart so that you remember the impo importance and courtesy, which is now almost lost for most people, so that when you see somebody with good manners, it, it's impressive, isn't it? Not because they're, they're using them like, oh, the, the stupid things you that that leads to where everybody who's up for a job in the House of Representatives first says, thank you for the question. Uh, and it's clearly 
purely a, a psychological gimmick because in most cases they're not the least bit thankful for the question. They're even more honest. They say that's it. that question's a very difficult one for me and I acknowledge that, but you never hear them say that, or very rarely. Um, they've destroyed thank you uh, because they can even turn that into an insult. Uh, this is not good for children. We, I hope we, we used to insist on uh, please and thank yous and being polite, especially when eating. Uh, I mean, a meal with young children is, is anarchy on the edge of breaking into chaos, isn't it? Uh, quite frequently, uh, manners control that, and you teach them that in the process. Uh, so I, I will be writing to that young man. I will suggest that he puts Psalm 73 into his agenda as uh, something that not only does he read, but he knows. Just think of the, the, the passages of Scripture you can talk about without opening your Bible. Those are the ones that you've got to know. That's another thing I learned in my education without knowing I was learning it because uh, I I didn't take anything home from school. We never did homework. Uh, I didn't write anything down very much. I listened, and every now and again we got a test, and I, I answered it because I could remember what they'd said. Uh, I went home playing, but in the back of my mind, what had been said during the day was there. Uh, I didn't do any homework until I went to high school. Uh, and I, I didn't realize for years and years and years that the memory that God had given me and that had been trained in various ways. I mean, going to church on Sunday morning for two hours, and uh, I knew that we didn't make a, no adjustment for children, no children going out. Children sat through it all. Uh, but it wasn't. To me, anyway, I'm so sure to some children it was a, a huge problem. Uh, but children do have a sense of when their parents are doing something important to them. Even if they don't understand it, they will have some reverence for that. Uh, and that was the most important thing I learned about the Bible. I learned that these people loved that book, and they loved the Lord. Uh, and it, it gave structure to their lives. Uh, I was talking to a young man this week and uh, he's uh, just about to get married and he said I have no experience of a family like yours he said it, it, it's been overwhelming for me in many ways in a good way we had a wonderful discussion uh, he went away with my copy of Mere Christianity given with pleasure because he's ready for it. Um, hospitality is going to be one of the most important things that we can do to reach the society around us and bringing up our children well and, and uh, demanding high standards and self-discipline is critically important yeah. because otherwise their minds will be chewed up uh, and ruined. They're not capable of concentrating for any significant amount of time at the moment. So if you find something that your children or your grandchildren are really interested in, feed it. It doesn't matter what it is. I, I, as Lewis said, I, I'd rather have a, a man who was interested in stamp collecting than a, a man who had no interest in anything, which is what most of them have now. Uh, anything that you do with passion will teach you something if it's a good thing I mean not not if it's a bad thing but truth is all that's at stake really here and so we went slowly enough that we actually took things on board so people growing up in that period all knew their times tables they all knew the bible uh, they'd all during their time met school teachers who cared about literature, who cared about science. Uh, the models were there. It is a very, very interesting story that this young man has already worked out that science is one thing, medicine is even bigger, but why did it happen where it happened? And, and 
at the time that it happened. Science and faith are not at war. Science is dependent on faith. And we have just had this, this year one of the most horrendous steps in a horrible government. Um, our rector at church said that uh, in their little town they had been told that there was to be no religious content to Canada Day. It had to be morally neutral, so to speak, which it cannot be. And, of course, they don't understand, the people who make these stupid comments, is that uh, secularism cannot be proved to be the only way to live. In fact, the evidence is increasingly apparent that it's not the way to live, that it doesn't work. Uh, love of country, which used to be a, a remarkable phenomenon, a bit, a bit overwhelming, if naive, in America, but it was good. Everybody thought America was the greatest. That's fine. All kids should think that their dad and mum are the greatest. Uh, they learn, yeah, there are dads and moms, that, and there are countries. But we have a history which is very important in the Western world, and America in particular is a privileged country. It, it, as far as I can see, it's the only country in the world that was formed with no argument about the basis being Christian and being a Protestant form of Christianity too. Um, the Topher, when he came, said he didn't understand America till he went into the churches of America, which was the focus of uh, every community. Sure, you had good, good guys and bad guys, that's always the case. But when you first started making cowboy films, you uh, always made sure that all the kids understood the guy with the white hat is good, the guy with the black hat is bad, you know, pretty... Uh, straightforward conventions in those uh, moralistic tales in most cases. Now, of course, uh, the, the moralism has been destroyed as the tales are dark and getting darker with, with no redemptive theme even possible. Uh, when did you last see a film? Yeah, there are redemptive themes. But even The Shawshank Redemption, a lovely film, uh, I'm sh I wonder how many people who watched it actually would think about redemption as a uh, theological process. I don't know. So the narrative that we have to preserve has got to be first worked out in the family. Um, that young man has honestly been brought up in a home where belief in Christ had pushed out the pagan gods, and it would be very simple. But... He got a good mind, and the moment he started getting access to books, he started reading good, good stuff. He obviously had some people in his life uh, that were models that he was following, and he's looking for models. That's, that's wonderful. Where we're going, I don't know. Uh, the fact that what we've done at Augustine College, which has now been running since the uh, the, late, the late 90s, has such a small take, if you like. I mean, we do something that very few other educational uh, institutions have done. The, the students who come to us have a very high probability of going to church after the experience of retaining their faith through university. Uh, Hugh usually puts the figure these days that less than 20% will do that. They'll come back in due course, but you go to church, you can see the whole. Uh, the 20s and 30s are not in church until they have a family and then they start to come back to church in America. Not so much in other places because Sunday school is dying because there's so much trivial competition. They'd far rather watch television and cartoons and be on their phones. Uh, Sunday school is just passe, gone. That's very sad. We will not have our own narrative. And de Tocqueville understood that what was happening in America would lead to a dumbing down. And even if you think about it, uh, the equity, the, the equity of outcome is what they want, equal outcomes. 
Nobody should be any richer than anyone else or have more things than anyone else, except the very elite, of course. But think about it for a moment. If they actually were so unfortunate as to achieve what they wanted, there would be no point in doing anything. Because those who do nothing have exactly the same outcome as the people who work their butts off understanding something. Now, obviously, there are different levels of that. You can do it for purely intellectual reasons, and that's what it used to be like in the university. Uh, and the, the great thing about academics was that they weren't very interested in things. One of my most academic teachers married to an equally academic wife, their sitting room had a carpet, two deck chairs, and a fire, and books galore. They didn't need anything else. I mean, there was probably some whiskey lying around as well, but uh, they were not bothered about things. One of the, uh, the other guys who taught me at medical school, he was actually a very wealthy man, but he, drove, he just drove a little Austin 7. He didn't need to show off. It wasn't the way it was. Uh, now, uh, it's all about display and what others will think of you. It, it's trivial. It's trivial. Uh, I remember going to see Beyond the Fringe, which was the show in London that preceded uh, Monty Python and all the rest of that kind of thing. And Jonathan Miller had a lovely line in Beyond the Fringe. He said, I went out the other night along the Tottenham Court Road. He was, a, he was a medical student at the time. I needed uh, a little relaxation, but he said, all I could find was rape and murder and lust. I can get that at home, but there was no real entertainment anywhere. Of course, that's what they were doing, and they did very well. But they, the throwaway lines in these things... Are so important that they're showing you where you get to. There was no unnecessary vulgar speech. Yeah. Then it started to appear. Now, uh, the F word and the S word are everywhere. It's basically a failure to be able to make an interesting sentence, as far as I can see. I call it adjectival and adverbial. Uh, depletion. They don't have any adjectives and they don't have any adverbs, so their life is very boring. Everything is F. There's nothing else to say about it. What? Well, you might as well be an animal. That's what we got to. But our culture didn't do that. That's what this young man is already appreciating, and he will get further immediately. I mean, the base, the heart of medicine, in my view, was all key ideas which the Greeks understood, uh, the Hippocratic physicians, they began with an oath, a promise. I vow by Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. Now, no Christian would take that oath, but those are the only sources of transcendence that were available to the Greeks. And what medicine was... What they were saying, they wanted to improve medicine, which was pretty dire at the time. Physicians killed in the time of Hippocrates. It was easy to do, and you made money. And they actually wanted to make it better. So they understood that if you could take seriously the idea of judgment after death, if your vow to the gods was real, you would be a better physician. You wouldn't abuse your position. Uh, no, it doesn't work completely, but it's still true. And uh, now, of course, with MAID and the like, I can say to any medical audience, is, is it not true that when you come to the end of your life, you want a physician whom you can trust? That means a physician who fears judgment after death. If he doesn't fear judgment after death, the only question is, can I get away with it? If the answer is yes, you do it. And in any medical class, students say, oh, yeah, there are people in the class who, who will live that way, are living that way already. There's got to be a technological fix for everything, but of course there isn't. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But you can see it everywhere. The worst thing that has happened to us in terms of families in my lifetime was the invention of the contraceptive pill. 
before it happened, when I went to medical school, it hadn't happened. It happened during that time in the 60s, uh, 50s, late 50s. None of the girls in my medical class would have sex because it was too risky. They were not going to risk their careers. They'd be friends. You could do, you could have dates, but they would not involve sex. The nurses would have sex, but they ran their own abortion clinic in the OR after midnight. Then the pill came along and everything changed. Now you get girls who think, I've got to, if I have a date, I've got to have sex. They're so brainwashed. Teaching in, in high school says, uh, everybody's doing it, you should do it. Now, that's an abuse of statistics. The data shows that what they want to do is they say, no sex, that's the real thing, that's the one side, and any sex after that is the other side. Now, that's not true. If you look at the statistics more carefully in these studies, there are a few, there are very few kids who get to university without having had sex, but a lot of them have only done it once or twice. Why? Because they realize that this is not, this is different. This is, I'm not ready for this. So if you readjust the statistics and say, and certainly from an epidemiological point of view and the spread of sexually transmitted disease, you should put zero and one and two in a, in a, essentially an abstinence capacity, they're not going to get sexually transmitted disease, uh, except if they're very, very unlucky. Now, when you looked at the first data coming out from uh, before, when AIDS was still called gay bowel disease, because that's where it was first called, because the first place it was seen was in the bathhouses of California. It actually came from Africa, and the person who allegedly brought it into America, was near Canada's steward who knew he'd got the disease. And he went to one of those bathhouses in San Francisco or LA or wherever it was, I can't remember. But in the morning, he switched on the lights. He said, gentlemen, I've got the curse and I've slept with each of you. What, what it meant is in going around having sex with multiple people that night. And when you looked at the data in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, there was a risk of getting the disease and number of partners. I can't believe it. The partners went up into four digits in a year. That means multiple partners every night. And then I met a few of them. Yeah, that's the way it is. Th that happened in no time flat. And we now have an entirely different world. And most people still can't bear to think about it in any honest fashion. And, of course, we've got a technological fix now so we can co control HIV at vast expense. But it's been a wonderful success in stopping its spread. But it wouldn't have been necessary in the first place had we held on to our way of living in the past. And the other thing, of course, that that did was it meant that in peak creativity times, uh, sex didn't get in the way. There's very good evidence that the later sexuality starts being active, the more inventive things get done in the immediately preceding period. And guys know uh, one of the things that we can be is tunnel vision, and when something gets a grip on us, it can really take over. Um, you look at the hours of work that people like Faraday put in as a boy. Our patterns that we have today are clearly counterproductive to a, a powerful culture, and we need to start thinking about how we defend them. We have to defend our faith uh, more definitively than we've done to date. I, I make a plug again for Roger Scruton's little book, uh, this one. Uh, you probably can't read it, but it's uh, Confessions of a Heretic. And the last chapter in this beautiful book, beautifully bound, a pleasure to read, is called Defending the West, Defending the Culture We Have. I mean, the truth of the matter is, 
that if all the refugees in the world were given their choice of where they wanted to go, it would be America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Nobody would put Saudi Arabia on the list if they had free choice. And they want to get out of Africa because it's not developing. So when I go there, I say, yeah, it will happen, especially through Christians. And this young man is an example. He will make a good contribution to the world if he stays close to the Lord. But that's where I learned about the power of Deuteronomy because the, the Africans said, why aren't we developing? I started teaching Deuteronomy, and that's why the Jews developed. If you ask an Orthodox Jew, how come the Jews win almost half the Nobel Prizes, the real ones, every year, they say, go to Deuteronomy 6. It's the narrative within which we bring up our children. The narrative they're growing up with at the moment is screens and all that that portrays. It's frightening. I'm so glad I I still haven't become addicted to anything beyond the computer. I've had a, a cell phone for some time. I've used it about twice so far because immediately after Sally got it for me, uh, COVID came along. The only reason I needed it is that people can't meet you at the airport anymore without parking, and I don't want them to have to bother to do that. I couldn't say, I'll call you, uh, but I had to have a phone. Uh, you can't do anything without one now. They're forcing you to have one in various times. But that means you're vulnerable to all that goes with it. I suppose if we could persuade people to keep a record of how much time they actually waste uh, for no benefits each week, I think it would be horrendous. I can't imagine how much it is, but I'm sure it's a lot. But that's enough bad news for the day. Uh, but it's not bad news, is it? As the light gets less, our light should and will shine brighter. It's sad that someone can say, I haven't known a family like yours, but there's no reason why you shouldn't have one. I think that's it. Thanks, Sean. I'll leave your imagination to work out how we can do something about getting young people to, to take a gap year, not doing nothing, but doing an Augustine-type program. We need to be able to say, come and do it for free. Given what it does for the church, I mean, if you could take 20% uh, of your students, uh, young people going off to university, coming back to church, and turn it into 70, what does that mean in terms of the church's finances, for a start? I mean, there's got to be a way. What's Jordan Peterson's uh, phrase, monetizing? I don't like the phrase, but but we could monetize things. If you set up a scholarship program for your kids and said, you can have this year for free, we'll, we'll give it to you as a gift from the church. Uh, if you've achieved certain standards, they've got to be able to write it to get. For it to be worthwhile, you've got to be able to uh, write a decent essay. Uh, we can fix it as long as you can make some progress. Uh, we'll make a big difference in the quality of the SAE ride. But it, it's not somewhere to send your kids because they're out of control. It's somewhere to send your kids because they're not yet damaged goods. We're not uh, a, uh, a conversion program. If you do come and you're not a Christian, you will convert in six weeks or leave. That's basically what happens. There's only been a few in that category. Most one or two got saved, and most of the ones that were pushed by parents bullying them because they knew they were out of control said, I'm not staying for this. Question, you, you mentioned something about Sunday school and how it's just not a thing anymore. Were you talking about Sunday school in relation to children or Sunday school in relation to adults? In, in relation to children. Yeah. It, Sunday afternoon was when Sunday school happened. And, of course, in the working class areas, it meant mom and dad had a quiet Sunday afternoon, so they loved it. They, my mother would walk from our house to the scouts hut where she ran Sunday school on her own. Um, and it was like the Pied Piper of Hamlet, you know. As she walked down the street, she'd 
she'd be collecting the children. She didn't have to stop, she just walked. They were waiting and they all joined. There'd be between 30 and 50 kids every Sunday afternoon. And all she did was bring the Bible stories to life, which she could do. She was a storyteller and she could sing. You don't need anything else. And that still would be true because they, they love it when it's there. But now if it's not got bells and whistles and semi-clad people jigging around, it's not entertainment, is it? The Bible's not entertainment, but it's good. It's Sunday school. Yeah, but it's not happening. It's virtually dead because it needs teachers who love the kids and love the story and have the capacity to draw them in. I mean, there must be people who are still doing that. But they first moved it into church, which I don't think was a good move. I never heard of it being after, like you were saying it. Because, you see, that got a lot of kids in who wouldn't, when, would not be in church so they never went to Sunday school. The ones that my mother was collecting from a working-class area, no, their parents never went to church. The working class in Britain was lost to the church in the early part of the 20th century to a large degree. Well, after the, after the First World War, or even before that, in many cases. And Sunday school was the one way in which uh, working-class kids could get drawn into Christ uh, young. It happened to my uh, mom and dad that way, my dad in particular, and his family, they were all sent to Sunday school because dad was a bit of a drunkard and he wanted to sleep on Sunday afternoon. So the kids went to Sunday school. Thank you guys all for listening. If you stuck around, we appreciate you tuning in and feel free to reach out. Let us know what you thought. Obviously, this gentleman from Malawi did, and I know John really appreciates getting letters from people who are listening because most Wednesday mornings, well, we record on Tuesday, but he just sees my face. So uh, it's good for him to hear from the hundreds of people who are tuning in each week. With that being said, have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Wednesday. Mm-hmm.